0: You're going to need uh, to be looking at John chapter 19. And while you pull them out, let me remind you that we're in a series called The Seven Sermons from the Cross, and we've looked at five statements that Jesus made. He makes seven overall. And it's it's been interesting because some people are surprised. Uh, last night after the service, I had some people... Comment to me that uh, what are you going to do for next week? You're done with the statements. You're going to make one up I don't know why he has such a low opinion of my uh, faithful preaching to the lord's word, but There is indeed a seventh statement. We're going to be looking at that one next week But tonight this morning rather we're looking at the sixth statement And you'll see it in john chapter 19 verse 20 or verse 30 and I'm going to draw your attention there, and let me get your minds ready as we do a deep dive into what's behind these three words, because they hold great, great significance for us. So let me give you an interchange, a, an interaction between a Christian and his neighbor. There's a great difference between your religion and mine, said the Christian to his neighbor. Really, was, this, was the reply, well, what is it? Well, here it is. Your religion has only two letters in it. Mine has four. And perplexed, the neighbor said, well, I don't really understand. What do you mean? And the, and the Christian said, well, yours has the word do, and mine has the word done. Now, I want you to take that simple little illustration. And I want you to take the letters D-O-N-E and I want you to transpose them over the cross in your mind's eye. And as we approach again the suffering of Jesus. Let's look at this concept that Christianity is all about the word done. Not about the word do. It's Friday afternoon. It's just minutes, maybe even literally seconds before 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It had been a long six hours of suffering for Jesus. He'd been on that cross since 9 o'clock that morning, the Bible says. It was a cursed, wretched tree. In fact, friends, listen, if you want to try to climb inside the horror of the cross, then listen to the Roman statesman the publican Cicero. Here's what he said about crucifixion. Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears. Don't even think about the cross is what he's saying. And by the way, that's not uncommon today. There's a lot of people that teach. There's a lot of people that preach. And there's a lot of people that insist, stop looking at the cross. Well, 1993, that wasn't too long ago. In November, there was a conference up in Minneapolis. 2,000 people came. They attended. This this was a conference on theology. So listen, these are theologians attending, 2,000 of them. And one of the speakers at this conference called arrogantly, by the way, here it is, the title of the conference, Reimagining God. Listen, if you've got to reimagine anything about God, then you're going to add something or take it away from the scriptures. You don't need to reimagine anything. You just need to read the Word of God, study it, show yourself approved, and learn from it. For all we need to know is plainly written in the Word of God. But not for two thousand theologians in 1993. They've got to reimagine God. So the first speaker was lesbian feminist Virginia Mollenkopf, and she was associated with the National Council of Churches and. She said that the idea of the atonement of Jesus was the ultimate in child abuse. And a model of human child abuse, it depicts God as an abusive parent. That's what she said about the doctrine of atonement. She was followed by Dolores Williams. Dolores Williams was a professor at that time at Union Theological Seminary. Here's what Dolores had to say to 1,999 other theologians. I think, I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses, dripping blood and all that weird stuff. Listen, Cicero has been echoed throughout the ages. Stop looking at the cross. Don't look at the bloody death of the Son of God. There's no merit in it. Just get beyond it. You'll live in the church age. Focus on the future. That's what people will tell you. I'm here to tell you we do need to look at the bloody cross. We don't like it. I don't like looking at it, as Peter said in worship, It's not comfortable. Listen, I'm studying this all week and I'm learning deep dives into crucifixion. It's horrible to think that God put skin on, was born as a baby. God, our creator, the one who loves us more deeply than anybody ever will, submitted himself to be impaled on a wretched wooden bloody cross. They reused the crosses. You don't go out and carve another cross for every single person you crucify. They put you on a cross that's been used over and over and over again. Stained deeply. And we do need to hear the words that Jesus spoke. And I do want us to be there on the hill. There in that moment. There on Golgotha at 3 o'clock. I want us to look at Jesus. By the way, he's gasping, but he's slowing down. He's about to die. And I want you to hear with your words what he says, because he's about to speak. And I want it to drive into our minds, because my goal is That our view of Jesus will only rise. That your understanding of how much God loves you and what he's done for you. It's complete D-O-N-E. Transpose it in your mind over the cross. You don't need to do anything to be saved. And here we come to the text. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Matthew doesn't mention this. Mark and Luke don't mention it. Only John records it. By the way, John's the only disciple that's by the cross. Everybody else is far away. And he records that Jesus said, it is finished. Now, can I go back and remind you, and especially if you're here for the first time in this series, listen, you can breathe in. You can inhale on the cross. What you can't do is exhale until you relax your intercostal muscles. You're hanging on the cross. He's got a nail through each wrist, a nail through, through both feet, one nail through both feet, probably through the heel bone. Nerves have been crushed. The only way you can exhale on the cross, enough to to speak because you've got to force air through your larynx. You've got to get it through your vocal cords. And the only way you could do that is to push up on your feet, pull up on your wrists, and exhale and speak. He's going to do it two more times. He just did it. He said, it is finished. Three words in the English, right? One word in the Greek. He speaks one word. The ancient Greeks, by the way, boasted of being able to give an ocean of information in a drop of language. Listen, they were oratory masters. If you were regarded as a great speaker, you could give a lot of information in few words, which I just, just thought of. Man, my sermons are long, aren't they? <laughs> I don't like it when these thoughts come into my mind during I preach. Charles Spurgeon wrote that this one word that I'm about to introduce you to would need all the other words ever spoken or ever could be spoken to explain it. It's altogether immeasurable. It is high. He said, I cannot attain it to it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. Listen, if Spurgeon can't, there's no way that Tim Ackley is going to even get close. So I'm going to, I've got a choice to make this morning. It's like this. You've got a major, huge, Lawn to mow, one that takes days. And you've only got three more hours till the sun goes down. So you've got a choice to make. You're gonna go around a few times, you're gonna do a section, you're gonna do what my oldest son did the first time he ever mowed the lawn. I gave him all the safety talk, I gave him all the modeling, he followed me around. This is fun, this little guy would follow me around the yard as I'm mowing the lawn, and then I said, All right, Matthew, it's your turn. You ready? Dad, I could do this. All right. I watched him go around a few times. Hey, he learned. He's doing pretty well. He's safe, keeping his feet back. I go into the house to get some water. He comes in, and a little while later says, Dad, I'm done. I say, you're done? Well, that was kind of quick. Let's go out and take a look at it. I go out, and he did crop circles in the lawn. (laughs) I mean, there's, there's like little paths around diagrams and symmetrical. I don't know what he was doing. I said, Matthew, what were you doing? He goes, I just mowed the lawn. I don't even know why I'm telling you that. It's not in the notes. (laughs) But you've got a choice. You can mow the whole lawn. You can't do the whole lawn. You can go around. You can do a section. You can go in the center. Listen, I'm just going to give you a section of the incredible, infinite depths of this word this morning. It's up to you to go further. You've got to study this. The tools are all over the internet. Get in there and study it. The word that we're going to look at is the word to telestai that's the word for it is finished three words in english one word in greek everybody say it to tell us that. you're just speaking you're speaking greek it was a well-known word it had great and broad uses in the first century servants now listen look at behind me because look at all the ways this word was used servants used it when they had completed their master's tasks artists would use it when the final touches, they would stand back from their work of art and the final touches had been applied to their masterpiece. They would speak over their masterpiece to tell us die. Merchants would use it when the haggling had come to an end. Today we shake hands. Both parties were satisfied. The deal was made. They would pronounce the word to tell us die. Farmers used it when a Perfect lamb was born into the flock. Tax collectors wrote the word to die across the receipt. When you paid your taxes in full, bankers used the word when a loan that you had taken out was completely repaid. And priests would pronounce this word when when somebody brought a lamb to the temple to be sacrificed and they would inspect it and they would look over it. And when it had no spots and no blemishes and no defects, they would say the word to tell us die over it. A lot of uses. But even more, let me remind you of what I've frequently told you is that the Greek language, friends, this is what makes both the Greek language, both so difficult and so wonderful, because the Greek language has tenses and the tense that Jesus speaks this one word it means it is finished and it is forever done. It's not finished today and we'll do it again tomorrow. It's finished now and it is finished forever. That's the tense that he uses. Now that's really important. Now I gave you a quick look at what the word to means and how it was used. It means completed. It was used always, listen, always positively. There was not a single negative use for the word. And I've told you all of that, but let me ask you this to think in your mind well, what is it? What is finished? And this now becomes the fun part of having to study and having to pray and having to learn and discern what is it that is completed well the first answer i'm give you three we're going to really focus on the third the first one is that to tell us die was Christ's confirmation that all the prophecies that had spoken about him in the old testament they'd all been fulfilled you remember last week i thirst his fifth statement from the cross john says he said this to fulfill the scriptures Well, here's what happened. He said, I thirst, and here's what the soldiers did. They took a hyssop branch... They put a sponge on the end of it and they dipped it into a jar of sour wine. They always had a jar of sour wine near the cross. Listen, if you were a criminal and you were being crucified, you're not gonna be very happy about it, obviously. You're going to be profanely cursing. You're going to be reviling. You're gonna be throwing out all sorts of stuff, but you've got a raging thirst going on. All the soldiers had to do was take this sponge of sour wine Put it to your lips. Your body's so dry, so dehydrated. You can't help but drink deeply. And it's an astringent. It's going to constrict your vocal cords. You can't speak anymore if you drink a lot of it. Jesus says, I'm thirst. They put this sponge. They dip it in. They put it on the hyssop branch. He takes enough to loosen his tongue to speak two more times. And in doing this, all of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah who would die for his people found their conclusion, their fulfillment. Well, somebody might say, well, look at verse 36 and 37. There's two more prophecies to come. Those are passive prophecies, meaning that they're going to be accomplished when he's dead. This is the final prophecy that he can do. This is the final one that he can accomplish in his life. It's finished. The cry of thirst completed it. Now he could say the word to tell us die. He had brought to an end the task of fulfilling prophecy. But there's a second reason. The second reason that he says this. You see, Tetelestai was the declaration that his suffering, his suffering was finished. Now, I want you to think of Jesus for a minute. Here's Jesus born into Israel, hardly the center of commerce in the ancient world. And not only born in Israel, but he was born in a little town south of Jerusalem, in a little town of Bethlehem. He was born, and there was not even room at the inn, the Bible says. He had to go to the stables they've discovered today Cave systems all the way around Bethlehem. Almost everybody agrees he was born in a cave. That's where they stabled their animals. And not not only was he born in a cave, he was born in a manger. Not a cherry or oak bassinet. Do you know what a manger is? It's a trough made of wood or stone. They used it to put water and food in it for the animals. Here's Jesus. Here's God come to earth, born as a human baby. And he's born in a cave in a backwater part of the world and put into a feeding trough to lay down and sleep. And he grows up in this town that he comes back to when he begins his public ministry and all the town knows him and he declares the gospel to them and all the town gets outraged at him and they begin driving him toward the local cliff, not on a sightseeing tour. You remember when you used to play down there, Jesus? That's not what they were doing. They were going to do the Old Testament form of stoning. You throw the victim over the cliff and if the fall doesn't kill you, you take rocks and you drop them on him. He slipped out of their grasp in the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's rejected by his people. He's born into poverty. This is God come to earth in Jesus. He had no place, the Bible says, to call home. He had no pillow for his head. He had no bed to sleep in. He's given no fair trial, just hours before his crucifixion. He's receiving the greatest injustice possible. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's cursed. Listen, the Bible says his beard hair was ripped out of his face. Have you ever seen a picture of violence so bad that hair is pulled out of the face? It leaves Open, gaping, bloody welts. This is God in flesh having his hair yanked from his cheeks. So severe was his torture that Isaiah said he did not even look like a human being. It's the words of the Old Testament. And he was impaled on a cross to be made a spectacle a human exhibit like one would do to see a freak show at a carnival. Here's people parading by the cross. It says that the chief priests and the priests in the Hebrew or in the Greek were literally thumbing their nose at him and putting their thumbs in their ears and waggling their fingers, mocking God, mocking Jesus. They did not know what they were doing. Nobody has suffered like Jesus. And that's only the physical suffering. Far outweighs. The physical suffering eclipsing it is the spiritual suffering as the father takes the ocean of our dark guilt and all of our sins and pours them at noon over the head of his son, blotting the sun out, bringing darkness for three days. The father, for the first time in all of eternity, turns his face of blessing and favor away from his son. That was the height of his suffering. And his shout of victory to Telestai signals that his suffering has come to an end. He will not need to suffer a second longer. It is over. He's completed his task. There won't be any more tears for Jesus. There will be no more suffering. Listen, do you not know that that's our hope? for all of us who are in christ i know you're suffering we got people in our church that are suffering on death i don't know if other churches have this widespread of suffering i mean from talking to my friends that are in ministry it seems like we've got more people suffering proportionately in this church than is in most churches There's deep, deep suffering. People have almost died in the last month. Not only that, there's marriages that are in a state of dissolution. There are families, parents whose kids are not only wandering from the Lord, they're so far from God, they're in the middle of the desert. And it doesn't look like they're coming back. There is great suffering here, but the hope of to tell us die is this one day, friends, every one of you in Christ, including me, you're going to hear the word to tell us die and your suffering is done. You will never shed another tear. He will wipe them from your eyes. You will drink living water. You will experience perpetual, eternal hope. There will be no more death. You will never see another friend die. This last week, one of the older couples in our church said to me, it seems like we're going to a funeral every week. They're in their 70s. When you're in your 70s, all your friends begin dying. It is suffering. They're tired of going to funerals. But every one of them, remind them that one day the word to tell us die is coming. They won't die anymore. They won't suffer anymore. Jesus fulfilled the suffering. There's a third reason, though, and this is the one I really want to focus on. There's a third reason he shouts the word to tell us die. It's the affirmation from Christ. It's his affirmation that everything necessary for our redemption is complete. Now, when you hear me say the word redemption, now you think through this, think in your mind. When you hear me say the word redemption, what are you thinking because we are, maybe our closest parallels are you redeem a coupon or you say something that hurts a friend and you want to redeem yourself, so you apologize. That's kind of how we use it. But in the Christian's mind, we think of redemption and we start to think of Jesus, our deliverer. But listen, I want to take you back now into the first century. Every one of you, you're no longer alive today. You're alive in the first century. And this word redemption, everybody knows about it. It's an infamous, you heard that, an infamous word. Because it's a word that is deeply, deeply connected to war. Wow. Pastor Tim, I never heard that before. What do you mean it's deeply connected to war? In the ancient days, wars were conducted a little bit differently than they are today. You see, one of the unfortunate customs of war was that the losing side, those who were vanquished, the losing side, all the ones still alive, were gathered up by the winning side, and they were brought together, and then they would do interviews with each one of them. And if you had no family of rank back home, and if you had no family of money back home, you were then moved to become a slave to the conquering army. But if you belonged to a family of rank, and if you, your family had wealth and money, then you were separated out, and then they would send a letter back to your family that says, if you want your loved one back, here's the purchase price. And the purchase price was called the ransom. You got that? Of course, you're going to want to have your loved one back. You're going to want to pay that ransom price. But here's the situation. You're not only now in the first century, men, men, you're the only ones that go to war in the first century. Men, you're on the losing side. And left to yourselves, listen, left to yourselves. If you have no family that will pay the ransom price left to yourselves, you have no way to get yourself out of bondage. You are enslaved. This is the understanding that all lies behind the word redemption. It's what enables us to now begin to hear the real heart of Jesus when he shouts out in victory to tell us die. You see, the need for redemption, the way I just explained it, is seen all through the scriptures. Let me take you on a quick tour. Remember Genesis 1? God created everything. God's the creator and everything's his creation. Listen, what artist has to answer to his work of art? To the creator belongs the creation. We are gods. We answer to God. We owe God our life. And we might turn from God as maybe even some of us here have today. We might deny that he exists But we cannot alter the fact that God made us and we all belong to him. But then all of a sudden in Genesis 3, sin comes into the picture. Now you might say, well, I don't really like talking about sin. That's because you're a sinner. And I am too. But we've all sinned. You know, I got to tell you, in all the years of ministry since 1992 that I've been in, I've never once had somebody really tell me that they've never sinned, even unbelievers and atheists. Listen, you've been given a conscience. Everybody has a conscience, Romans chapter 2. Everybody has a standard in their mind. It might be a seared conscience. It might be a conscience that has a different standard than mine. But everybody has a conscience. And whenever you go against your conscience, then you feel guilt. And that guilt is the evidence of your sin. Every single human being is a sinner. I learned this very, very early in parenting. How can you have a six-month-old little boy? They can't even walk, but crawls his way towards the electrical outlet, hears his father say, don't touch that son, that is dangerous, move your hand. And yet he looks right at me as he begins to reach for that outlet, wondering what I'm going to do. Six months old. And on that day, I said, I've got a sinner. (laughs) He's just like me. He's learned it from me and it was passed through genetically. Every single human being that has ever lived is a sinner. And the solution to sin, and listen, you know this, the solution to sin is sacrifice. Here's what Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, we don't like that. listen you've got to understand god said to adam and eve the day that you sin is the day you die sin brings death and he also said god did in leviticus that there's life in the blood if sin is so heinous that it could bring death then the only antidote the only atonement for it is the life of a living creature has to be given up to make atonement for the death bringing sin that's why sacrifice has to be made. But friends, here's the interesting part. The death of an animal, and we see it all through the Bible. The death of an animal, the blood of an animal that is shed, listen, could never, ever take away sin. Well, Tim, how could you say that? It seems like that's all they did in the Old Testament was sacrifice animals. Sin is too evil. It is too terrible for the blood of an animal to atone for it. Friends, listen, the Jews knew this. The Jewish people knew this. This is why smoke rose continually from the altar, because you had to over and over and over make another sacrifice. This is why the priests... When they were serving, when it was their shift, they had 24 divisions of priests. And when it was that priest's division to serve, they weren't ever allowed to sit down. They had to stand, signifying that the offering, the true atonement that can take away sin, has not yet come. It will come in the future. The death of an animal in the Old Testament was a shadow of what is to come. Listen, haven't you ever been out in the woods early in the morning, out on your porch where there's a tree in your yard? And as the sun begins to peek up over that horizon, all of a sudden it casts that long shadow from your tree. And as that sun continues to rise and it begins to go right straight overhead, there is no more shadow anymore. The shadow points to what is to come. The shadow is a sign of what is to come. And if you live in the shadow today, then the sun of God has not yet shined on you. So every single animal that was ever brought, let me be more vivid. Men, you're the ones that brought your lambs to the temples to the temple for your your sins and your family's sins and you bring that lamb they're little lambs in israel they're not the big ones that we see in farms here in america they're little ones And you bring that lamb and you you lead it up this 15 steps to the of the temple mount. And you go through the court of Gentiles with your lamb and you go through the court of women and you go into the court of men. And that's as far as you can go, because the next courts, the court of priests, there's a railing that separates the court of men from the court of priests. You go to the railing and a priest will come and meet you. And the priest will have a knife in his hand and he will hand you fathers that knife. And as you take the sins of your family, yours and your families, and as you pray them over laying your hands on the head of that lamb, it will be after that is completed, the trumpets will blow and the priest will say, now is the time to sacrifice and you will slit the throat of your lamb. And that priest who now has a silver bowl in his hand will catch the falling blood. And we think this is grotesque. This is barbaric. But the blood that is flowing out of the lamb's severed carotid arteries is not powerful enough to take away your sins. It points to the one whose blood will be powerful enough to take away your sins. And that's the blood of the lamb of God Jesus Christ, every animal offered in faith in the Old Testament could cover your sins only because it pointed to the perfect sacrifice that was soon to come. Jesus Christ, but he will take them away, not cover. Well, maybe it makes sense this way. You know, you could write me a check today and you could write that check in any amount you wanted. But if you don't have the money that's in your account to cover the check. It's a worthless piece of paper. The, the written check friends only has value. When you've got money in your account to cover it. It was the blood of Christ. It was the blood of Christ. That stood behind every single sacrifice of an animal. That was made in faith. And it could cover your sins. But the blood the perfect blood of Christ could take them away. The cry of Tetelestai as we return to Jesus. It's the finished cry of victory. He's proclaiming that his blood, his death, just wrote the check. It just made the deposit into the bank of God's favor that can underwrite every check that was ever written and every animal sacrifice that was done in faith to God. That's how it works. And his death made atonement. His death paid the price for the freedom for any who would trust in it. This is what Jesus said, John 8. He said, if you abide in my word, you can see it behind me, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And look what he says, the truth will set you free. But free from what? He goes on. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Let's just be honest. Have you committed sin? The answer is yes. And it made you a slave to sin. And let me take you back to redemption. You ready? Sin has captured all of us. Listen, it's the it's the conquering army. Army. And we've lost, and it's captured us on the field of life, and it's made us prisoners and slaves. We've all fallen into the power of a strong enemy. We cannot break free. We need a redeemer who will pay the ransom price to atone for our sins. The prisoner can't pay the ransom price. Somebody that loves him always has to pay it. Listen, I'm going to put it this way. If God wants people back, he has to pay the ransom price. And he's got to buy us back from sin and give us freedom. This is entirely why Jesus came to earth. Look at what he says in Mark chapter 10. For the son of man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life. Here it is as the ransom price. For many. His death was the ransom price, and it's why the early church could glory in the knowledge that Jesus bought with his own blood. That's the ransom price he bought with his own blood, the church. This is why Peter says the ransom price that he paid was his death on that cross. He says you were ransomed from the feudal ways Revelation says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were, for you were slain, Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Now look at this slide behind me, because you see two directions. We're ransomed from our feudal ways, and we're ransomed for God. Two different prepositions, and they're miles apart. One's in the past and one's in the future. Friends, die. his victory cry was his proclamation that he has paid the price. He has deposited it into the account. And it is going to start setting people free and bringing them home to his father. It's his cry that Satan was defeated And you might say, well, I don't understand that. How can you say Satan is defeated? He's still all around me. He confounds me, He trips me up. I can see his devastating evil. I can see it everywhere. Well, let me put it this way. Thunder and lightning. Think of this the next time you have a a storm. Thunder and lightning, friends, they actually occur at the same time. Did you know that? Lightning strikes its energy heats and rapidly expands and it instantly creates a sound wave of thunder or rather It creates in that wave an eventual sound wave of thunder The reason for the delay for the crashing boom after you see the lightning strike is that sound travels a lot slower than light but they happen simultaneously and you take that dynamic, and all of a sudden you hear to die, and you hear the defeat of Satan, and and then all of a sudden you begin to hear that Colossians says he disarmed the rulers and authorities, spiritual rulers and authorities. He, he declawed them, he yanked their teeth, and he put them to open shame. The triumph over them, he tri- by triumphing over them, when he yelled to die friends, it's almost kind of like. The time that I shoot a deer with my bow and arrow, but it still runs for 90 yards before it dies. It's dead when I hit it. It just keeps moving for a while. And that's Satan. He's been defeated. And one day he will be thrown into hell for eternity. And we are redeemed by Jesus' death for freedom. We're redeemed. We're given that ransom price by Christ so that we can serve God. So let me ask you, and I'm almost done with this, so let me get you to really focus in on what I'm about to tell you. Have you been set free from sin? Listen, you've been captured. I have too. By the strong man called sin. We've been enslaved. You know, you can't. Before you came to Christ, you can't not sin. You can't stop. Stop. Yeah, you can say no periodically, but you can't live the way you want to. You don't have the power. You're defeated all the time. But when you come to Christ, he gives you the power to say no to ungodliness, godliness, Titus says, and then to say yes to righteousness. Now sin is a choice. Before you cannot not sin, now sin is a choice. Have you been set free from sin... And that great iron barred door swung open for you. But, friends, here's the better question. Listen, have you left the cell? Listen, the door's open. The ransom price was paid. You can go home to God. Jesus has his hand extended, the hand of grace, but you're still sitting there in the darkness of your dungeon. Why? Have you left that cell? And have the shackles and the manacles of the bondage of sin fallen off of your wrists, and and you find yourself walked right back into another cell and somehow reached down and put them back on your wrists and your feet? Have you found yourselves captive again to sin? Haven't you ever gone to the zoo? And seeing those great gorillas just sitting there staring back almost with lifeless eyes. Haven't you ever seen that elephant? Incredibly powerful, yet it could be tied by a thin little rope to a stake that if it really wanted to, it could uproot without even thinking, a sneeze. And have you ever seen those lions, those king, kings of the beasts? All they do as you're at the zoo, you wait for twenty minutes and they never even move. They just sit there in the sun, lay there and pant and look around. That's the Christian who's been freed from sin, whose door cell has been opened, has been ransomed, bought through the blood of Christ, but has found new ways to be enslaved, has found new manacles to put on his wrists or her ankles. See, to tell us, die friends, listen, if you don't get anything else out of the sermon, at least get this, to tell us, die is Christ's declaration to us that everything that's needed to... Give us our freedom from sin and our freedom to serve God. Everything that's needed is done. He did it. He's finished the work to make us free. Sin, friends, if you're in Christ, is no longer your master. Satan no longer has domineering power over you. If you sin, And we all will sin. There's a battle between our flesh and the spirit. But if you're captive in sin again as a Christian, you've chosen it. Because it's your freedom that he has purchased. You're not your own, Paul says. You're bought with a price. The price was the blood of Christ. He paid the ransom. And he's brought you home from the conquering army. So glorify God In your body. You know, we have an artist in our church. Who, when she learned about this great word to tell us die and its power and its significance for her. She began every painting from that point after she applied the final finishing touch She began to write that word in the bottom of her painting and sign her name to declare what Jesus Christ has done for her. Have you written that word on your heart? To be honest with you, some of you here, with as many people are here, you may never, ever have written that word on your heart. You may not yet have turned to Christ in faith. You may not yet have been have had the check clear the bank that's paid for your sins. You're still in your sins. You're still in bondage. That might be you this morning. Listen, if that's you, likely you know it because you're feeling heat inside your chest that you can't explain. You're feeling that anxiety. I felt it. Well, I'll give you what I think you might want to do in a minute. But maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you are in christ maybe he has written that word on your heart but you've forgotten and you've walked back into another dungeon and you've slapped chains back on your wrists and now you're in bondage again and he still has the prison door open he still has his hand of grace extended to walk you out of it but you're not moving you're sitting there and you're content in your misery and you don't need to be you are bought to be free It's your right to be free to serve God. Well, I think there's maybe two different sectors of people here this morning. So let me invite you to do something. Just close your eyes. I'm not going to make you get out of your seat. But I will ask you to be honest. And if everybody has their eyes closed, the camera is now off. I am the only one that's looking. And I want to look because I want to pray for you. And I'm going to start, I'm going to ask two different questions. One of them is this one. Please be honest. If you know, you know, you know that God has not yet written the word to die over your heart. And you're still in bondage. Would you just simply raise your hand so I can pray for you? Be honest. I see that hand. I see that one. I see that one. I see those. Five, six, seven, I see more of them. Be honest, I see that one too. Keep raising your hands because I want to know who I'm going to be praying for in a minute. Be honest, are there any more? Let me give you a moment. Don't wrestle with this. Eternity is at stake. You can have that word written on your heart. Any more hands go up. All right, you can put those down. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. Let me ask one more question. For those of you who have put your trust in Jesus Christ, have you found yourself enslaved again? In bondage to a sin that you cannot escape, you cannot seem to let go of, you cannot get victory over? Do you realize that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for you? The door is still open. His hand of grace still is extended to you. He has not left you. Will you reach out and take hold of that hand and let him walk you out of there? If you will, will you raise your hand? Because I'm going to pray for you too. I see those hands all over the sanctuary. Be honest. Raise your hands if that's you. There's no shame in this. I see it. Anymore. I see it. I see that one. Give you just a few more seconds. Just be honest, friends. I see him. Let me pray. Father, for the. For the hands that went up, Lord, that have never had to tell us written over their hearts. They've never had the ransom price deposited in the. The bank account, spiritual bank account has cleared the bank. They're still in their sins. They're still in bondage to the strong enemy of sin and Satan. Lord, I pray for them. God, as as I speak even now to them, and I pray on their behalf, Lord, let them know there's no right or wrong or secret prayer that they've got to pray to make it work. Lord, if there were that you'd put it in the Bible, there's just not... Lord, let them cry out to you. And maybe even right now as I'm speaking this, they're putting it in their own words. Cry out to you that they are caught up in the bondage of sin. They are sinners. And they've seen this morning that Jesus Christ, he died and he shouted out to die, to proclaim that everything that's needed to rescue them from sin and to forgive them, everything needed was done in his death. Lord, let them ask you to forgive them. And to seal them, to seal them. By the spirit of God. With an unbreakable seal. That they would spend eternity living. With you. Lord, forgive them. Teach them, Father, how to live as free people. Let them love your word and love your people. Lord, for those whose hands went up that are Christians, they've already had to tell us die written on their hearts, but Lord, they've found their way back to a dungeon. Maybe, maybe it's a dungeon of shame. Maybe it's a dungeon of active sin, dungeon of doubt. They're all dark. They're all dreary and they're all hopeless feeling. But, Lord, their doors open. You opened it when you cried out to Telestai. You opened it. That's why right after you died, even the graves all around Jerusalem spilled forth their dead. There's no dungeon that can stay open. And the blood-soaked cry of the Savior. And, Lord, your hand of grace is reaching out to them. Let them grab it. Let them admit, Lord, that they have sinned. And let them cry out for your help. Walk them free, God, so that they can serve you with a conscience that is clean and a joy that they've never had before. Lord, we ask for these things on behalf of those who raised their hands. Thank you, Jesus, for your kindness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.